0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 139. And as you're turning there, I just want to invite you to join us this afternoon directly after the service. Literally exactly 10 minutes after we finish the service, we're going to begin setting up for vacation Bible school. Now, just so you know, this room actually looked a lot more like the inside of a medieval castle about 24 hours ago, but because the heat, it melted the glue on the tape and most of our decorations have fallen off the wall, which means we need a lot of hands. We need a lot of help to get us get these things back in order. Uh, I purchased different kinds of tape that's supposed to handle that a little better. If you would be willing to stick around with us afterwards and help, that'd be great. Especially if you are serving tomorrow at VBS, uh, when we begin that time together, we're going to send some people to go ahead and start taping things onto the wall, Others we're going to ask to come forward. If you are serving that week, next week, starting tomorrow, uh, we're going to ask that you come forward. We just want to make sure everyone knows everything that they need and has everything that they need prepared for tomorrow morning. I also just want to say a big thank you to John Barlow for being here today. John, that was an incredibly encouraging um, moment that you shared with us, especially about being from this church. I am so grateful that we are able to send and that we have sent in the past, and may God be pleased to raise up more to go out from this church to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel to all peoples everywhere. John, thank you for coming and sharing with us. We're so blessed that you're here. Uh, With that said, let's open our time together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do ask and We come before you now pleading with you that you would use your word today to open our understanding. Give us a bigger perspective of who you are. Lord, we pray that we would not be in any way confused about your character, about your attributes. That we would not have a minimized perspective of your incredible power. That today in considering the omnipotence that you have, Lord, that we would be humbled that we would shrink in our own eyes, and that we would glorify you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we've been considering some of the incommunicable attributes of God. We see them as they are displayed in the chapter, Psalm 139. Now, there are many attributes that as Christians... We are able to imitate, for example, his love or his kindness, his mercy, his righteousness. Not only are we able to imitate him in those ways, we are commanded to be like God in those ways. We are commanded for our lives to begin to be shaped more and more like God in those attributes. However... There are some attributes the Bible teaches about God that are exclusive to God himself. The Lord is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. And we will never be like God in any of these ways. Psalm 139 is a very deep well that speaks about these three omnis of God. But what we've been discovering is how the author of this psalm, King David, understood that these attributes of God are not just arbitrary, they are personal. For David, these were not merely abstract principles. They were personal realities. We have been considering with David exactly how these attributes intersect with us in every aspect of our existence. If you have your Bibles open, please follow along as we recap starting in verse 1. We began Psalm 139 by considering the fact that God is omniscient. He knows everything. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and me, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You, from you search acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. There is nothing about you that God does not know. He is fully and perfectly aware of every place that you go, everything that you want, and every word that you speak even every word that you choose not to speak. He is familiar with the loftiest thoughts in your brain and the deepest, darkest fears of your heart. Your mind is a veritable theater for God. God is infinitely familiar with every single idea that has ever entered into your mind. He is omniscience and his omniscience is personal because his eye of knowledge is perpetually settled on you. David continues by shifting into the omnipresence of God, not just that God is everywhere, but how that affects us specifically. Look at verse 7 and following. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah tried to escape God, and how did that work out for him? Here David is highlighting the fact that there is nowhere absolutely nowhere that anyone can go to escape from God. If God is your enemy, this is bad news. But for David and for every believer in this room, this is excellent news because there is no place that you could ever find yourself where God is not perfectly and personally protecting you. Even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not need to fear any evil because God is with you. And now we come to the part of the text that we're focusing on today, where David begins to highlight how the omnipotence of God relates directly to individuals like you and me. Follow along in our text for this morning, starting in verse 13. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Today's outline is very simple. First we're going to consider God's power. Then we're going to consider God's power in your creation. And then lastly, we're going to consider God's power in your recreation. Before we get to the task of exegeting our text that we just read, let's first consider the broad scope of what the scripture says about God's omnipotence. You see, David is writing from a position, from a standpoint, that his readers are already convinced of God's power. So he jumps right away into the personal aspects that are displayed in his omnipotence. But we are going to begin first by getting a sense of what it means that God is all-powerful. So it's going to be just a little bit before we get back to Psalm 139, but keep your finger there. At the center of most of our confusion about God is that we tend to imagine that God is like us in ways that he is not. For example... One time I was speaking to a man, and he said, Well, if you're praying to God and other people are praying to God, how is it that he can listen to you and other people at the same time? That is an imagination that God is altogether like us. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God tells the Israelites that their problem was, You think that I am altogether like you, but God is not altogether like us. He is a God of infinite power. People have funny ways of calculating power in the world. We're going to consider just a few various categories of the ways people regularly use to measure power in order just to see the comparative greatness of our God. Let's begin with the simplest form of power scale that people typically use. From time immemorial, people have been finding the heaviest thing they can, and they pick it up. And that's how they measure how strong they are. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the heaviest verifiable weight ever lifted by a single human was 5,340 pounds lifted by Greg Ernst in September of 1961. A Canadian. To put that into perspective, that's about 1,000 pounds heavier than my Toyota Sienna when there's no pee in it. He held that weight for about 12 seconds. That is an incredibly powerful man. One of the greatest feats of strength ever recorded in the Bible is actually one of the most overlooked parts of the life of Samson. In Judges chapter 16, the Gazites, who did not like Samson, locked the city gates at night to keep him inside, and they conspired with one another and said, when the sun comes up, he'll be stuck here, and we're just going to capture him, and we will ambush him, and we will kill him. But in order to prove his great strength and in order to escape, Samson just walked up to their city gates and he ripped them off their hinges. Now, according to scholars, that gate weighed between 10,000 and 20,000 pounds. And Samson didn't just hold it for 12 seconds, he carried it for 36 miles and set it up on the hillside just to taunt them. For reference, that's between two and a half and five of my Toyota Siennas that he carried for 36 miles. And most of us in this room could not carry a backpack for 36 miles. Sometimes I'm sitting up here on the front row and I'm holding two of my children while we sing. And by the time I get up here to preach, I'm already winded. And Samson carries this gate 36 miles. And we look at a feat like that and we are shocked and we are amazed because of the incredible power displayed in the body of a human being. That guy is way stronger than me. But that is just because we are finite, we are small, we are limited, we are weak. We are so small and so weak that we look at a simple man-made door and we think that it's a big deal that Samson could carry it. We look at a Canadian and think it's a big deal that he could pick up a car But God works in categories far beyond that and far beyond our comprehension. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus upholds the entire universe. He upholds the entire universe with nothing more than the word of his power. God is all powerful. God is omnipotent. He doesn't even have to lift a finger to lift everything that exists. Another helpful comparison point is the fact that you and I get tired in fact, roughly one-third of your life is going to be spent sleeping. You basically turn into a breathing beanbag for six to eight hours every day. And one of the clearest evidences that you are not God is found in the fact that you and I cannot survive without the necessary restoration that comes through sleep. Regardless of your perceived level of earthly power, you are eventually going to have to succumb to the limitations of your own body. Whether you are a king or a servant, a president, or you are homeless, you must sleep. You have to recharge your batteries because you are finite. You are small. You are limited. You are weak. But this is not so with God. Psalm 121 verses 3 through 4 tells us, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel does not slumber nor sleep. God does not sleep because he does not need to refuel. He does not lose energy. He does not need his immune system to be reset. He does not need to clear his mind. He does not need to sleep because he is not altogether like us. He does not need to slumber because he is infinitely powerful so that even if he expended all of the power that exists in the universe, he would still not be one drop closer to an empty tank. God does not sleep because God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Now, although there are many more comparisons, we're just going to consider one more way that people gauge power. Sometimes people define power by how many subordinates we have. How many people have to listen to you? How many people answer to you? How many people are under your authority? Now, there is a range in this room. Asaph is 11. Uh, He is quickly growing in responsibilities, but at this point, In his life, uh, we do not permit him to be responsible for the life of any other human beings. Not quite yet. He's getting there. There are some people in this room who have dozens and dozens of people under their authority, people who answer to them. But even the person in this room with the most power and the most control in this life will pale in comparison to the fact that every single human knee ever created will bow before Jesus Christ. Every one of us is going to stand before God at the judgment seat. He is the one who makes the rules for our lives. He is in charge of all of us. And it is to him that we are accountable. Even if you were the best leader with the most gifts for management and training and delegation in history, there would still be a number of people that you would reach where you could not surpass that number and continue to be a good leader. And that is true because you are finite, you are small, you are limited, you are weak. In 1990, Snap said... I've got the power, and they said it many, many times in that song, and they were wrong. But God can rule all people without breaking a sweat because God is all-powerful because God is omnipotent. But as promised, Psalm 139 reveals how this power, this omnipotence of God is displayed in our lives directly. Point number two, God's power in your creation. David begins by highlighting the creative work of God in personally designing each one of us. But there's something somewhat surprising about that that stands out to me. Look with me once again to verse 14. David writes, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, I can see exactly how David would describe the creative process of God in knitting together a human being as wonderful, that I am wonderfully made. But what does it mean that we are fearfully made? Well, believe it or not, I did a word study this week on this word in Hebrew to see what is the underlying root of what is going on here in this passage. What does this word fearfully mean? And quite literally, this is the most common word in the Hebrew language for, you guessed it, fear. It literally just means fear. And it's the word that we see here in this interesting location because what in the world could it possibly mean? Obviously, it is not God who is fearful. God was not fearful when he was knitting you together. Nor is it the baby being created that is fearful in that moment. Obviously not. So what is David getting at with this phrase saying that we are fearfully made? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the text to use that word? Here is why. This word fearful is speaking about our proper response to the fact that God made us, when you consider that God created us, it should produce in you fear. Now, let me explain that because there is such a thing as rational fear, and there is such a thing as irrational fear. Let me explain it this way: If I come to the age, the, uh, the ledge here of this stage and I stick my feet halfway over across the ledge based on my ability to balance and my age and my current limitations. That is, it would be irrational for me to fear dipping my toes over the edge of the stage. That's not a big deal at this stage in my life. But if I was not standing here at this church on this stage, and instead I was standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon, then it would be rational for me to fear stepping my toes over. There would be an appropriate kind of awe that results in trembling and stepping one step at least away from that edge because there is a devastating reality if I fall forward into it. It's important for us to understand that when we view God, when we hear about the fear of God, it is to respond to him in a way that is properly acknowledging his power, in a way that recognizes his incredible strength to such a degree that we respond in trembling. His incredible power is something that should permeate our minds so fully that our only proper response is to bow down and recognize the terrible, incredible power of God. One of my favorite ways that I've ever seen this described is actually in C.S. Lewis's children's series, the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a conversation between Mr. Beaver and the children. And Mr. Beaver tells them about Aslan, which is the character that is symbolically representative of Jesus. And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And you can even hear in the writing the, the response, the incredulity of Mr. Beaver as he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. That is an excellent description of the fear that we should have for God. For Christians, we do not fear God because of what he will do to us. We fear God and tremble before him for the very fact that he is God. What I would like to do now is to draw out five truths from Psalm 139 that reveal why you and I should have that kind of powerful, fearful response to God's work in creating us. First is the fact that you exist at all. One of the phrases that comes into the modern lexicon recently is the phrase designer babies. Perhaps you've heard that phrase. It's this abominable idea that wealthy people are attempting to eliminate what they perceive to be undesirable traits and to produce children with physical specifications that they want. We should all oppose that kind of practice. But the fact is that all babies are actually designer babies. And I mean that in the sense that all of them are made by a designer David said, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And he adds in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, don't get confused about the biology of all of this. God did not have to create you. It was not that your parents produced a life, and then God had to snap into action and then somehow order you and wrench that process away from them so that he could form you. One of the repeated truths that is hammered home throughout the Bible is that God is the one who opens the womb. Sarah. Hannah, Elizabeth, Mary, God is the one who opens the womb. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The Lord gives life. There is no scientist or scholar who can explain why sometimes the biological process produces a spark of life and sometimes it does not. No one can explain that, nor will they ever explain that. But the scripture does provide us with that answer. God chose to make you. Because he is perfectly powerful, he could create both both your body and your soul. The very fact that you exist rather than not exist is cause for you to respond with a fearful wonder and awe at his power. Now before moving on from this to the second point, I don't know how I could preach this passage or one like it and not mention the glaring evil in our culture today that rejects this concept entirely. Now, what I'm about to say is challenging, and I say it with love and an acknowledgement that there is a storehouse of grace more abundant than you can imagine for anyone who has sinned by way of abortion. God forgives, and he grants peace for sin of every kind, including this one. So please don't hear me condemning anyone. If you have fallen into the sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And so is this church. We cannot be silent about the fact, however, that our society preaches to you every day that God has no part in conception or in development of children in the womb and that they should be considered as disposable. Abortion is without qualification the destruction of God's work in creating life. We as believers in the scriptures must stand for the life of every person that God creates, both the born and the unborn, regardless of health, Regardless of physical capabilities, everyone is knitted together by God himself. They belong to God himself. They are precious in the eyes of God. Every one of them. So men, I say to you in this room, never permit circumstances to allow you to think that it is acceptable in any way to destroy the good gift that God has given to you. And never pressure a woman to sin in that way. Ladies in this room, please hear me. Never feel as though you are without options. If you are ever in a crisis situation and don't know what to do, come talk to me and to my wife. We will help you. Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center will help you. This church will help you. And if you cannot keep the baby or find a suitable home, we will find one for you. Every life is precious in the eyes of the Lord. Let's move to the second thing that we should see here regarding the move our heart should have towards fearful worship because of acknowledging God's creative work in our lives. The number one, the absolute primary way that God reveals his power is in creation. Romans chapter one, verses 19 through 20 tells us that what can be known about God Is plain to them, speaking of all people, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now pay attention to the wording. It does not just say that God's attributes are displayed. It does not just say that they are shown. It does not just say they are painted in the sky or discovered through some kind of research or scientific method. Paul clearly writes that the information is more than just available. He writes that this eternal power and divine nature has been perceived, and it states clearly perceived by everyone. How is that true? How in the world is that true? Well, the very fact that God has brought you into this physical creation and allowed you to encounter the natural world in any way is evidence enough of God's divine attributes. If anyone has ever experienced any of God's creation by seeing with their eyes or hearing with their ears or smelling with their nose or tasting or feeling anything, then they have clearly perceived enough information to know in their soul that there is a God who perfectly and divinely and powerfully created all of these things. It is the ontological imperative that if something exists, it must come from somewhere. And intrinsically, the scripture teaches us that all things came not from somewhere, but from someone, from God himself. God created each and every one of these senses that we have So that he could allow you and me to have an experience of his attribute of divine power firsthand. So that you would live in the uninterrupted reality of God's power on display around you at all times. The third reason that you should respond in fearful reverence in regards to the fact that God made you is this. David wrote, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, you need to know that God made your body for you. He gave you the gift of this physical tent to inhabit during your journey in this life. And the phrase here, inward parts, scholars are divided on this, but it likely indicates not physical inward parts like kidneys and spleens. He is rather talking about spiritual aspects of your creation. He is speaking about the creation of your soul. One thing that often blows me away is when I watch videos of my older kids when they were very little. And it's amazing how little their personalities have changed. Everything else has changed. Their voices have changed. Their size has changed. Their styles of hair have changed. But their personalities, well, they really haven't changed that much since they were itty-bitty. God made you as a unique art form that's never going to be replicated. Not only your personality, but your gifts. Some children have a penchant for music. As toddlers, they can walk up to a piano and start poking around on the buttons and begin to create something that sounds melodious. They can begin to recognize and understand what that music should be. Some children have that kind of a gift with numbers or with stories. I know that when I was a kid, when I could barely walk, we had a fireplace, and in front of the fireplace was this stone kind of uh, raised, elevated area that was rather large, and we had a fake microphone. And as a kid, I would get up there and I would stand there and I would speak to my family and I would tell them all sorts of things. Before I could even speak, I had something to say. And God made every one of us with particular skills. From that time as a, as a little tiny boy, my parents were always saying, this kid is going to be a communicator. And by God's grace, that gift is something he has used in my life. But that is not something I created. That is not something that came from them. God made each of us with particular skills and talents. So we must be really careful calling those sorts of things natural talent. Because nature did not give you those things. God did. This past Wednesday, Christopher Ortiz was here preaching for us from Brooklyn Baptist. And he, he highlighted in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the verse that says, "'What do you have that you did not receive?' Now, that passage in particular is in reference to spiritual gifts. If you are a Christian, God designed you to serve your church in a way that is different than everyone else. He designed the way that you were to be built and created for a very specific purpose. He designed you piece by piece, and you are a hand-sewn masterpiece of God. Your body, your personality, your talents, your gifts, your spiritual gifts, they are all reasons to worship God with reverential awe. Because he has designed you exactly how he wanted you to be. The fourth cause for reverential awe that we see here in this passage is found in verse 16. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. It's not just that God designed you and then he left you. He didn't just plop you onto the earth and say, figure it out. He is not some kind of divine watchmaker who is accustomed to making a creation and then letting it run just to see what happens. God personally ordained your life, every step, every breath. He planned out each day of your life, your peaks, your valleys, your sickness, your health, your birth, your death. Every last one of your days was meticulously scheduled by God in his heavenly planner. According to David, before there were any days of his at all, every one of them was scheduled, was planned from beginning to end. God's omnipotence is not just a past reality in your life that began with him knitting you together and then failed to exist beyond that. It is not just something that you experienced when you were designed in utero. It is not just a passive reality even in the sense that you are aware of God's creative power through your senses. It is an active power in that you are still daily living under the supreme, sovereign control of God's perfect plan. You are not an afterthought in God's providence. God is weaving your life together into the ever-unfolding story of his glory going forth to the entirety of creation. There is now one more cause for fearful adoration of God that I want to bring up here. But in order to see it, I need you to jump all the way down to the end of the chapter. Just the last six words of the chapter. Now, we already looked at verse 24 in detail a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to consider the final words in a different light today. David writes, Lead me in the way everlasting. Really, we could just look at the last word and get the point that I'm attempting to make. That is the idea of something being everlasting. Even in this Old Testament psalm that was written about a thousand years before the birth of Christ, there are already glimpses into the concept of heaven. Although our eternal life is not defined yet very clearly in the Old Testament, David certainly understood that there is everlasting life that exists for those who know the Lord. In 1994, the former editor of Christianity Today named Marshall Shelley wrote an article entitled, Two Minutes to Eternity. He wrote it after wrestling for several years over the loss of not one, but two of his children. First, he lost his daughter just before her second birthday, And then he lost, just a few weeks later, his son, minutes after he was born. Now, I'm going to read to you a few pieces from that article this morning. He says, of his son, after they knew that there might be challenges when he was born, he said, he was a healthy pink, and we saw his chest rise and fall. The breath of life. Thank you, God. And then almost immediately, he began to turn blue. We stroked his face, and we whispered words of welcome, of love, and farewell. All too soon, the doctor told us that he was gone. I was with my son his entire life, two minutes. He entered the world of light and air at 8.20 p.m. on November 22nd, 1991. And he departed, the doctor said, at 822. It seemed a very short time, too short. My wife Susan and I never got to see him take his first steps. We barely got to see him take his first breath. I I don't know if he would have enjoyed softball or software or dinosaurs or dragonflies. We never got to wrestle or race or read. Would he have enjoyed those things like his sisters do? What would have made him laugh or scared or angry? Those questions swarmed around my soul in the days following my son's arrival and hurried departure. So many things that I wondered, but one question loomed larger than the rest, haunting me for months. Why would God create a child to live two minutes? After expressing the immense heartache that he experienced in his spiritual journey throughout that article, in the conclusion, he writes this. Why did God create a child to live two minutes? He didn't. He did not create Mandy to live two years. He did not create me to live 40 years or whatever number he may choose to extend my days in this world. God created my son, Toby, for eternity. He created each of us for eternity. Brothers and sisters, we have reason to stand in reverential awe and fear of God because he created each one of us eternal beings. Once you begin to exist, you do not stop existing. That child that lived two minutes was fearfully and wonderfully made for eternity. And in the scope of things, we are all going to exist without end. And where you spend eternity has everything to do with what you do with Jesus in this life, which brings us now to our final point, God's power in your recreation. In Psalm 139, David speaks of the way that God has divinely worked out his power in every person in all of creation. We all exist because we are his creation. But because of sin, every last one of us has rejected God's authority. We have denied his power. We have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And for that reason, every one of us have placed ourselves in a category of being worthy of eternal judgment under the wrath of God. But Jesus, the same God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, came to earth to be one of us. Not to just be like us, but to be one of us. Though he spoke the universe into being, he humbled himself and became a human being that he himself was formed and knitted together by God the Father in the womb of Mary. And Jesus was born as a human baby with all the same natural physical limitations that all children have. He became physically helpless so that he could spiritually help us. And though in heaven he never had to sleep, on that boat he felt tired. Though in heaven he never needed sustenance, in 40 days of fasting he was hungry. In heaven he never needed to drink, but on the cross he said, I thirst. His power is measured by the fact that he holds authority over all people, yet at his hour of greatest earthly need, everyone deserted him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. This all-powerful, omnipotent Jesus permitted his own creation to mercilessly brutalize him and put him to death so that he might be merciful to brutal sinners and bring them to life. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news. And by the power of God, Jesus was raised from the dead and he rules and reigns forever as king. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now Savior for all who believe. This is the gospel. The most important way to experience the omnipotence of God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 teaches us that the gospel is the power, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. If you have believed in Jesus Christ and been saved through the power of the gospel, then you have encountered the most powerful display of God that exists His power is a power that saves and a power that sanctifies his people. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you would cause us to be people who are immensely humbled, more than we ever have been regarding the fact that you are God and we are not. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to bow our hearts low before you, acknowledging your immense power, and that although you you had every right in your power to destroy us or to judge us, that you sent your Son to experience that penalty for us. Father God, I pray that we would respond with immense fear-filled worship reverential awe resulting in trembling as we consider our God, beholding him as the king of all. Lord, I pray that you would cause every person in this room who does not yet know you, as a, uh, who has not yet been saved, who has not yet been born again. We ask, Lord, that today would be the day that you open their understanding and that they would believe, repent, and follow after Jesus Christ. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.